the only thing you can't replace is time. All the other stuff, you can make more money, you can buy toys, that kind of thing. But you just realize that the time I was spending grinding through sales jobs, like that wasn't what I wanted to do. I really want to put myself in a position where, you know, I can control my time and let my money work for me. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty. Hello, hello. Another week, another episode. Welcome back to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. This is Clark here alongside my co-host, Jace, and this is episode number 92. On today's show, we have a guest interview with Chris Benson. Chris works in the self-storage space and gets into the nitty-gritty of self-storage investing. Everything from how to get started to the size of units to the prices of units to the types of self-storage units, you can bundle that investment with U-Haul rentals and boxes. So a really interesting interview today, one that helps teach us about a different type of real estate investing. Last week on the show, we had Todd. Todd and his wife have a current net worth of about 650000 He works in sales and his wife is in project management. He talked about his financial journey, positives and negatives of living in a high cost of living area. He talked about daycare expenses for his children and his plan to be financially independent and retire early. So a great conversation with him focused on his story and fire. Before we get into today's interview with Chris, just want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identify stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, tax incentives, and additional benefits that come with investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has 45 years of combined experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. If you'd like to invest with us in our multifamily opportunities, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We can jump on a quick call with you to discuss the opportunities and strategies. We partner with a couple groups that have current deal opportunities, so feel free to reach out. Many of you already have, I know, if you're interested in a syndicated real estate opportunity. Also, we'd love to share your millionaire financial story. Our goal is to get a broad list of guests and stories. So if you're willing to be on the show as either a millionaire interviewee or one who's close to reaching millionaire status, feel free to reach out to us. But without any further delay and without any further introduction, let's jump right into today's interview on self-storage investing with Chris Benson. Chris, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Yeah, for sure. Uh, first off, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to uh, to be on today and have a discussion with you. Right now, I'll kind of start where I am, and then uh, I'll work myself backwards. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for Reliant Real Estate. Um, we're a commercial self-storage operator out of Roswell, Georgia. And uh, my background into real estate is is a bit diverse. I actually started my career out of college uh, working for ADP, the payroll company. Uh, I was a business-to-business sales guy, so I would call on small businesses under 50 employees and sell them payroll services. 
Then I graduated in the sales world to uh, medical devices. I worked for a company which came became Covidian. Uh, it used to be called Tyco Healthcare. And then uh, from there, I went to another medical device company called Intuitive Surgical. Uh, your listeners may know it uh, from the Da Vinci robot. It's also been a phenomenally successful equity, uh, ISRG, for those of you guys watching, but it's probably too late. But that being said, um, about 10 years ago, I got into real estate, and um, it's kind of morphed from a residential to a commercial multifamily and then into self-storage into what we're doing now. All right. All right. So let's let's unpack this just a little bit. So you started in sales and then you got into real estate. How how did you kind of get into real estate? I know you, you mentioned to us that you started kind of small. You want to just describe that journey a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I distinctly remember waking up when I was 20 where I, I had hit a number from an income perspective. And, and it was kind of a number when you're growing up, you're like, wow, if I make that kind of money, things are going to be really good. And, and that year I had hit the number and I thought to myself, I don't want to do this for another 40 years. <laughs> like this, this isn't what I want to do. And I think what really resonated, I'm, I'm, I'm 39 now, um, was that you, the only thing you can't replace is time. All the other stuff, you can make more money, you can buy toys, that kind of thing. But you just realize that the time I was spending grinding through sales jobs, like that wasn't what I wanted to do. I really want to put myself in a position where, you know, I can control my time and let my money work for me. So, um, that's what got me motivated to do real estate. Um, the reason I got to real estate was rich dad, poor dad. I'm sure a lot of your interviewees and maybe some of your listeners have spoke to that. It, it's sort of the, the Bible of every passive income zealot in the world. How I got started in real estate is I bought a duplex in the county that we lived in. And I had my original business plan was if I could buy a unit and net $200 a month per unit. So if I bought a duplex, I needed to net $400 after all expenses, then I could scale that up. Um, and if I could get to 50 units, then I'd be at $10,000 a month and then I'd be, you know, living, living well. So. That was my original plan. And so I started down that path of buying duplexes. And um, not too far after I started, I realized it was awful. <laughs> I wanted nothing to do with... Um, we, we created some management systems, but I wanted nothing to do. And I don't mean to sound elitist, but with the people that were involved. And it was I could see the challenge was going to be to scale this because there was just so many individual issues. So when that happened, I decided that we were going to sell the uh, duplexes that we had accumulated, and we did. And then I had a little bit of capital, and what I wanted to do was get into commercial multifamily. I had listened to an interview, or I read it. I wish I could credit who said it, but there was a quote that said, big deals and small deals are the same amount of work. You just make less money with small deals. So I said, well, that makes sense. I, I, if I buy my bigger apartment complexes, it's the same amount of work. I'll just make more money. So um, that was what I did next. And um, how that started was I decided I wanted to be a commercial multifamily developer. I called a guy that I had grown up with, and he ran a construction company. And I hadn't talked to him in 15 years. 
I went to church. My family went to church with his family and I called him and said, Hey, Steve, it's Chris Benson. And I'll give the guy a little plug. His name's Steve Buck from Buck Construction. And I said, Steve, it's Chris Benson. I want to build some apartments. What do you got? Long, long story short, we ended up building a 64 unit apartment community, um, not too far from the town I grew up in. And that was sort of the start into my commercial real estate journey. That's awesome. So how did you end up buying some of those first duplexes? Was it just savings from, from sales? Yeah, I had been fortunate that I'd had a successful career on the sales side. So um, I had some capital where, you know, I could go in and be a, a traditional lender or would look at us and, you know, 20, 25% down on most of the loans that we did just with some local regional, uh, local and regional banks. I, I didn't really understand that there were portfolio loans and those kinds of things yet. And then when you went to build that 64 unit, did you go raise private money or did you kind of roll <laughs> in some of your, your own personal capital there? No, that was the, hey, um, Jen, who's my wife, uh, we're going to take our life savings and build some apartments. Are you okay with that? And <laughs> fortunately, I have a wife who is as risk tolerant as I am. So that's what we did. So my job in the apartment building was the capital. And so we did it in 16 unit phases. It was a 64 unit complex and it fortunately worked out really well. And, and I, for your listeners too, the hardest part was the fear aspect. I, I didn't know enough to know what to be scared about. I was completely naive. Um, fortunately, I had a very good partner. As I'm sure many of your listeners know, development can go really wrong really quickly. My partner was fantastic. Uh, super, super trustworthy guy, high integrity. And, and really, you know, in his business, he knows where the sharks are in the water. So kept us safe throughout the entire project. We, you know, we came in over budget a couple times that we had to, to front, but for the most part, kept us safe. That's awesome. And, and just going back to these duplexes, like what was the price range on that? And, and was the goal that you were going to, ma- you were going to self-manage all of them or start a management company once you got to, you know, all these units? That's too much foresight. I didn't really have a plan. It was, Hey, let's buy some real estate. As we got going, it was, I, I can't manage it because I still had a full time job and, and a very demanding one at that. So the original, you know, the first few, um, we self managed and then very quickly realized that that wasn't feasible. So we, we sort of amassed a contact list of, you know, servicers, plumbers, electricians, uh, people who could, who could help us. And then we, we really managed the, the rental process, the background checks visiting the tenant, meeting the tenants, those kinds of things, um, which ultimately is, I think, probably the reason that drove us out of the business. And how did you find these duplexes? Were they listed online or did you call brokers? Did you email? Yeah, it was. It started as a few listings and then most of them are in the county that I live in currently in upstate New York. And so I knew the area pretty well. And after we um, had got through a couple, you know, some of the brokers had brought some stuff to us. Also, we, we were targeting a specific market once we had a few just to create a little bit of uh, efficiencies of scale. So, you know, uh, there would be properties that would come on, you know, on streets that we already owned a facility or a duplex. And so we'd try to scoff those up. Sure. So then you, you sold them all. Is that right? Or did you hold on to any of them? I have one duplex left. One duplex left. So it's a pretty big jump, right? To, to go from these duplexes and then to a ground up development. How come you didn't go straight to buying a multifamily complex or a tenplex or a 16 unit? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's an opportunity piece, right? I, I, part of it was the discussion that I had with Steve from Buck 
because there was an opportunity that existed. He had a piece of land that a municipality had contacted him about for doing some development and kind of the, the timing just worked out well. I had sold some of the properties, so I had a little bit of capital sitting around. I knew I wanted to get into a commercial multifamily type of situation. And so that was the opportunity that existed in this one. And, and let me be frank, it was very much a naivety play. If I had known the risks that we were taking <laughs> when I took them, I'm not necessarily sure I would have done it. But you know, part of, I think the journey for, for all of us is, you know, being willing to jump and making that first step. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that I'm fearless by any means. I, I definitely still to this day have sleepless nights, but you have to do something or you'll never do anything. Yeah, I think it's, it's good advice. So at this point, you have 11 duplexes, 22 units, right? Then you start developing this multifamily apartment complex with what? Just over 60 units, right? Yeah, it ended up being 64. And so what, at this point, are you thinking you would have just, you should have just gone straight into the development? Did you regret the duplexes? Are you happy you kind of started that to get your feet wet a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was a regret. Uh, you know, every step kind of leads you to the next one. So there was definitely experiences that I took out of that, that I brought to commercial multifamily. And I think it was just a logical progression. I, I went a little bit quicker uh, just because I had a partner who gave me that opportunity. I think if if Steve wasn't there, I wouldn't have gone to try to do development on my own. I knew that at least from the construction aspect, I was way over my head. I, I couldn't manage that process effectively. So I think having a good partner is, is a critical step there. Yeah, and I think you make a good point that at some time in our lives, not even just on investments, right, opportunities are presented itself, and it, it might be a job, it might be through a friend, and, and sometimes even if it's not the path that we thought we would take or that we want to take, the opportunities there, right, and and then it, we can be become successful or at least get our feet in the door to to something that has a uh, future. Yeah, no question. I I think there's another quote I really like. This one I can quote. Who said it? Um, I I don't know if you're familiar with T Boone Pickens, but I think he made his money in natural gas, but he's an author. He's, he's a, a big philanthropic guy at Texas Tech. And he has a quote that I really love and it's, it's deals create deals, right? So like you said, there are opportunities that you think are going to take you in one direction. And when you get involved in them, other stuff pops up and you're, you, you're taken in a completely different direction just because you were willing to take that first step. And, and I've definitely found that in my career many times. The biggest piece is just kind of, jumping off. And if you're willing to jump off and you get good people around you and you're open-minded enough to, to learn, then there's going to be other opportunities that present themselves. Yeah, totally. And I think, I mean, I think Chase and I would both agree that that's played a big role just in our careers, right? Where we started out of college and thought maybe we'd do something, but then something else presented itself and, and then you kind of segue. And, you know, I think that that happens in life. So, just on, on your portfolio, your investments, how do you invest? Do you have anything outside of real estate? Do you invest in the market or small businesses? Say if, if we were looking at portfolio allocation, heavily weighted to the things that I know. And so I still have that 64-unit complex. Um, I'm also a, a passive investor in a number of multifamily projects across the country where myself and, and the little equity group we had built um, went out and uh, raised some money to, to invest in those properties. You know, on the equity side, I do have um, some equity exposure, but I do have to tell you that I'm I'm very cynical to the stock market. Um, for your listeners who've read any of the Michael Lewis books like The Big Short or Flash Boys or Liars Poker, 
it, it just sort of cements my view that we are pawns in a much bigger financial institutions game. You know, it's incentives have to drive behavior. When I look at how the equity markets work for me, they're irrational, number one, but two, my broker or my financial advisor makes money whether I make money or not. So that, you know, if I get a fee based structure, that's hard for me to quantify. Like, wait, 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 we just lost 18% and, and you still get 1%. So for me, um, my, my personal investing philosophy is really built around things that I know and that I can control. So I would say, you know, probably 80 plus percent of my portfolio is in illiquid placements in real estate. And then, you know, probably 20% is spread around in some specific equities. And I very much subscribe to, you know, kind of the, the Warren Buffett of invest in what you know. So it's, it's stuff that I understand and, and think has long-term value. Are most of those equity investments probably from the days that you were putting money into retirement accounts is, is in sales and whatnot? <laughs> no, I've, I've actually taken my 401k and moved it to a self-directed IRA and I've invested all that money in real estate. So yeah, once I had access to all those 401k dollars, um, we moved it to uh, something that I can control. Yeah, most of the, the private or the investments that we're doing on the real estate side accept qualified funds. So, you can take money out of an old 401k, roll it into a self-directed IRA, and then place it into you know an LLC or a, a, a limited partnership, something along those lines. Does it make you nervous not having any liquid investments anywhere? Well, I mean, it depends. I, I have cash. Um, you know, I have I have a, kind of a rainy day fund, I guess, or an opportunity fund, I would call it, where you know, in this next market correction, it, there will be opportunities that present themselves. So I kind of have the the uh, the emergency funds piece covered. But on the real estate side, no, uh, I, I don't know what I would need the liquidity for. Uh, I mean, at least in my lifestyle, like, you know, there, there's not a time that I need more than what our monthly cash flow brings. So it doesn't really make sense to me to say, hey, you know, I, I need to liquidate $100,000 worth of something so I can get to, you know, I, I don't know for what other than investing in other things, I guess. Yeah, no, totally. Is there a rule of thumb that, that maybe you subscribe to in terms of keeping that cash on hand? Or is it just kind of accumulate over time and then you just kind of find an opportunity eventually and then deploy it? Are you saying like a rule of thumb specific to how much? Yeah, or, or just like relative to your net worth. You know, I've, I've heard some people say, hey, look, I want to keep five to 10% liquid at all times, no matter what, no matter where I fluctuate, hmm. just in case or I just wondered if, you know, for our listeners and stuff, is there something like that in your mind to say, look, you know, I've been through so many market cycles already. I've got this much in real estate. I've got this much in cash flow coming from real estate. Here's where I want to have my liquidity at at a minimum. Now, I guess I don't think of it that way. And, and maybe I should. It's more of just a, a feel, you know, their cash doesn't make, you know, I, I, having cash sitting in the bank other than kind of that emergency or opportunity piece doesn't make sense to me. Like I'm not a person that would say, you know, Hey, I'm going to hang on to a significant amount of cash and wait for this correction. You know, I, I kind of get FOMO, like the fear of missing out on stuff. So, you know, I, I most likely if I have cash, I'm going to deploy it in something. And I guess my mindset is as long as I'm deploying it in things that ultimately create cash flow, I'm okay with it. Yeah, makes sense. So let's let's switch gears here just a little bit. We had a little discussion before the show about a primary residence. 
and and you kind of shed some light on your philosophy there. What what's kind of your mindset been <laughs> over the years with primary residence, and kind of where have you arrived at now? I think it, it's kind of a maturity thing, right? When when you're growing up, people, you know, I hear my parents. I think my dad maybe even have said it to me, like, "Hey, your house is your best investment," right? And you know, it, it's just sort of a societal norm that everyone should buy a home. And and interestingly, so we're we're looking at selling the house that we're in right now, and. You know, you look at the numbers of what you've put into your home over the years, you know, not just, I'm not saying just expenses and taxes, you know, just the normal maintenance expenses that you'd expect, but also, you know, some of the capital improvements that you've made. And, and I live in a market granted that hasn't had, you know, exceptional appreciation. So I'm not like in an Austin or in Atlanta where if I bought my house 10 years ago, you know, there's a, been a huge swing. So that's part of it. And, and I realize that, but. You know, arguably, my house is probably the worst investment I've ever made. I've made money on pretty much everything that that we've invested in, and and I'm gonna definitely lose money on the primary residence. I mean, there's there's a lot of you know kind of conspiracy theories around why home ownership in America is uh, proposed to be a good thing, but I can tell you, for, at least in in my particular experience, I guess my attitude towards it is. It's not an investment. You just have to be eyes wide open of what you're getting into. If, if you're buying a house to make money, you're probably approaching it the wrong way. No, it's hard. And, and we've had a lot of people on here that say, hey, I don't want to buy a house because it isn't a guarantee that it's going to go up. Or I don't want to buy a house because I don't want to put a bunch of money into it and, and not be able to access it or not have it being liquid, right? And so I, I think sometimes we always assume, hey, the house is going to increase in value and it's a safe investment, right? But but I don't know that that's always the case. You guys have read Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? Yeah. All right. So in Rich Dad Poor Dad, one of the first thing he makes everybody do is talk about assets and liabilities, right? What an asset is, it produces cash flow. What a liability is, it costs you money. What does the house do? Which which one? Costs yeah, you money. Cost, money cost, yeah, costs yeah. money. So it's a liability, right? There's there's no there's no like ifs ands or buts. It just is now. I'm not arguing that there is some value to that liability, right? Like, you know, we're in a, we're in a, we're on the end of a private road on a beautiful spot. We got a pond, you know, we're on six acres. Like it's beautiful. Uh, that part is awesome. You know, you have neighborhoods and kids that your, your family grows up with. But as long as you just don't tell me it's not an, it's not an investment. And so I know what the next question is going to be is, well, after you sell your house, what are you going to do? I'm probably going to have to find another house. I'm just telling you <laughs> that I, I'm doing it begrudgingly. If if we did not have, so I have two boys, one's graduating high school this year, um, or actually Thursday, and well, when we're recording it, Thursday, um, and the other one is in seventh grade. If I didn't have the middle schooler, I would buy a house. I'm a hundred percent sure of that. I think you know part of it. There's a social aspect of being in a neighborhood or you know in a community and and being solidified there for your for your kids, but. If if he wasn't here, I wouldn't buy another house. Yeah, and there's some element of that, right? We can't discount that it it brings happiness. Kids meet friends, you know, families happy. Sure. Like it, not everything's just about a good investment, right? We, I think we could all admit that. So let's shift gears here to self storage. Um, something that we haven't really talked about yet on our show. So you're a big investor in self storage, obviously. Maybe just give us an overview for somebody who's not familiar what that means. How do you, what is self-storage? I mean, people know obviously, but why is it a good investment? Um, well, it's a good question. I mean, I, I would say for me, the reason I shifted from sort of a multifamily approach to self-storage was 
you know, about five years ago, um, for, for those of you guys on, who are listening, who've invested heavily in multifamily or have exposure to it, you know, cap rates have continued to compress in multifamily for, for the last year, many years, the last five years specifically. And, and that's been great for sellers, but it's been much more challenging to find value in that market. And so that's what originally drove me to kind of look outside the multifamily space. And, you know, for me personally, there are, there are three things that I look at, you know, I would call the pillars of, of any investment in an asset class. And, you know, one of them is return, right? How, how is it done historically? I'm a big believer that what you've done in the past is probably a pretty good indicator of what's going to happen in the future. And, and I'll walk you through kind of my data on the storage piece for each of these, but let me go through each one. So it's, it's returns and then it's, it's downside protection. So I also believe that everything that happens in the market has already happened. You just have to look back far enough to find it. So in the next cycle, what's going to happen in the asset class that I'm in? And then the third piece is what's the opportunity? Like what opportunity exists? Um, what kind of runway is there in the asset class? So. When I looked at storage, here's what I found. And, and I'm going to reference a data set that maybe you guys can put in the show notes and, and your listeners can go see this data because it's a really interesting data set. Um, there's a, a, a website or a organization called the National Association of REITs, um, and their website is nareit.com. And you can go compare um, asset class by asset class. Um, on all of the publicly traded REITs um, to give yourself an apples to apples comparison. So, you know, Clark, if you wanted to look at office versus retail from 1995 to 2005, you, you can see what the publicly traded REITs did. And it's not perfect, but it gives you kind of that apples to apples look. And so they, they have a, a long term data set um, storage in the last 25 years averaged an annual return of 16.85%. So when I saw that, I said, whoa, that, that is an interesting number, especially when I compared it to what apartments did in that same time frame, which was just under 13%. Both phenomenal, right? And unbelievable returns, but storage outperformed arguably the sexiest asset in commercial real estate. Um, you know, retail was just about 12%. Um, the S&P 500, just as a, an aside in that 25 years, I think it was 94 through 2018. The S&P 500 did just over seven. So, you know, back to your question of why I don't invest heavily in the equities market. It's because it, it makes other people money, <laughs> not necessarily me. <laughs> So uh, the returns, that, that was pillar number one. Um, and then I looked to see what happened in the last market cycle. So in 2007, 8, and 9, what happened to storage? Um, and interestingly, storage lost less than 4% in that same National Association of REIT data. Apartments lost uh, just under 7%, 6.7. Uh, retail got crushed 12%. Office you know, lost 8 The S&P 500 down 21%. So, you know... It not only did it have really strong return profile, but it also had that nice downside protection. And the reason um, being in the industry and kind of my hypothesis then was Americans don't get rid of stuff. So when times are good, they buy things and they put it in storage. And then when times are bad, they downsize, but they don't get rid of their things. And many times those things end up in storage. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've been in a unit where the one month's rent of the unit is worth more than the things that are in that unit. But for some reason, people won't get rid of it. 
So the downside protection is really nice. And then the last pillar, as, as I talked about, is really the opportunity that exists. And, and I'm going to reference some data that it's arguable. So I'm going to give you a range, but depending on what you look at, there are six publicly traded companies in storage. There's five REITs and you would know them. The brands are like public, public storage, extra space, cube smart. If you're driving on a highway right now, listening to this podcast, start looking out the window. And I almost guarantee if you're in any sort of population center at all, you're going to see one of those signs right (laughs) off the highway. So there are five publicly traded REITs and then a sixth publicly traded company is U-Haul. And and everybody knows who U-Haul is. So those six companies only own somewhere in the neighborhood between 20 and 25% of the storage market. The rest is all over the board. So we at Reliant are the 27th large, largest self-storage operator in the country, and we own 47 properties. So if we're at 27 and the top six, right, are the REITs or the publicly traded companies, in between, there's only 20 companies bigger than us, and there's a ton that are a lot smaller than us. There are still a ton of mom-and-pop operators and for us as a self-storage business, that is a huge consolidation opportunity. You know, we're, we're closing out a property just to give you a quick example. So think about, you know, family-run businesses. Typically, they're not run like businesses, you know, especially if it's for second generation. They, they've just kind of passed down and they've created cash flow and people are happy with the way they run. And I'll give you a quick example. We're closing out a property um, in two days from when this is being recorded in Tampa, Florida, that the gentleman who built it, he built it in 1998 originally, and he's built some expansion since then, just outside of Tampa. It's in a fantastic location. He has never raised rents on tenants who have stayed with him. So, you know, uh, Jason, if you rented a unit in the year 2000, you still pay the same rate that you paid in the year 2000. He's raised rents for new people coming in. So if he has a 10 by 10 unit, he may have 10 rates that he's charging his tenants. Wow. But for us, we look at that and those are huge revenue opportunities, right? Where you just go in and bring everybody to market rents. Now you're going to lose some people. There's no question. But, you know, just running business, uh, the property like a business, you know, will make a huge impact. And so, for us, the real reason that I personally love storage is, is that consolidation opportunity that exists. And, you know, in multifamily, which is, you know, what I know the most about other than storage, institutional money has permeated that space for many years. And, and so those opportunities are very few and far between um, to find what, what I just described to you. So that's good. Let's now get into it a little bit. So one of these properties, let's call it, how many storage units on average? Obviously, it varies, but maybe a, a, the average of your the properties you guys hold. Well, so the average size storage facility in the U.S. is 52,000 square feet. It depends on what your unit mix is, right? The, the, the size is, you know, um, and different than apartments, right, where you may have, you know, one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom. We may have five or six, maybe more types of units, you know, a five by five. A 10 by 10, a 10 by 15, a 10 by 20, you know, 20 by 20. So there, each property is different, but, but our, you know, our properties are somewhere in that, I would say 500 to, you know, a thousand unit type of facilities. And how much do those rent for? 
<laughs> again, it, it depends. <laughs> it depends on the market that you're in for sure. Um, and, and sort of the supply and demand of, of what's in that market. But, you know, it, it could be anywhere from, you know, at the 10, you know, kind of the 10 by 10 unit is probably the most universally accepted. Like that's a, a pretty universal size unit. You know, it could be from a hundred to a hundred bucks a month to depend on the market. And if it's a climate controlled unit, you know, 200, 250 bucks a month. Yeah. And, and I think some of it does get more expensive or more if you do the climate controlled and how nice it is, right? And where it's located and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. I mean, second floor, do you have to go up an elevator to get it? Is it a unit that you can walk right into? I mean, there, there are all those, you know, not too dissimilar than uh, apartment real estate where, you know, you, you pay more for a better view or first floor versus a penthouse, different rental rates, kind of same idea. Yeah. Is there something that you guys like to stick to? Or are you just kind of open to all different types of self-storage? Um, so our sweet spot really is um, value-add. So, you know, I think everybody's saying it, and, and it's true, we're, we're late into a cycle, right? Um, and so our strategy right now is being conservative on our debt terms, but then also doing forced appreciation in our properties. So, you know, it's not like apartments where you can go in and put, you know, tops hardwood floors in your storage unit it, it's just a garage on a cement pad so what typically our value add is is expansion where we're buying a cash flowing asset and potentially in a market where we feel like it's undersupplied and so we're going to go in and add a component of expansion to it you know maybe it's a, a 15,000 square foot climate controlled building right on the highway so we're getting some you know frontage on the highway Really, what we're trying to do is bring all of our assets to an institutional class asset so that we can be, from our exit strategy, a target for institutional money or the REITs, right? Where, you know, those cube smarts, uh, extra spaces of the world say, hey, we'd like to be in this market. Here's a property that fits our criteria. And, and really, that's what we're trying to accomplish in, in our investor cycle. Gotcha. And then there's also additional streams of income you can have, right? Do you guys do U-Hauls on site or boxes or any of that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, both of what you just mentioned. So the first one's called point of sale, right? So you got boxes and tape and locks and packing materials, those kinds of things. Um, those are in our retail in an office type setting. We're selling those uh, direct to the consumer. And then, um, you know, the ancillary income like uh, U-Haul truck rentals, I believe, and don't quote me exactly, but I believe we're still one of the largest U-Haul retailers in the country because we do a lot of U-Haul truck rental off of our facility. And what's great is, you know, they're not our trucks. We don't maintain them. We don't lease them. Um, it's U-Haul trucks. We just take a commission on bringing, uh, when, when someone comes and rents a U-Haul truck from our facility. So it, it's a great, uh, it's a great business model. They've been a great partner. And then things like, you know, tenant insurance, um, our leases require our tenants to have insurance on the, the belongings inside the units. So if, if they don't have a homeowner's policy or a renter's policy, something that covers it, um, they can buy tenant insurance from us. And, uh, you know, we're partnering with an insurance company who, who creates a, a revenue stream off of that as well. So, um, those are some of them. And then, and then just some typical business fees, administrative fees, late fees. You know, those are the things that a lot of the mom and pop operators, um, and I don't say that in a derogatory manner, but a lot of the mom and pop operators just don't charge because they're, they're effort, right? It, it's challenging to collect late fees. 
and, you know, administrative fees are things that sometimes they don't feel comfortable charging. So, yeah, there's definitely opportunities to, to stream or to enhance the revenue line um, when you take over a property from one of those types of operators. I think you bring up some great points that just in general, I think a lot of people overlook self-storage, but they also forget that you have all these ancillary revenue streams, you know, and when I used to be in self-storage world, I mean, it's crazy, thousands of dollars a month in revenue for all these other products, the insurance you mentioned and the different fees and and everything else. And, And there's a lot of, you know, it's very low maintenance comparatively to some other asset classes in the commercial space, especially when you might only need one manager on site, you know, at a typical hour, you've got the keypad to get in and everything. So it's, it's an interesting business for people to look at. What, what's kind of your target return that you're looking at when you're getting it? Is there a range that you're kind of trying to, Hey, if we're going to underwrite a property that we want to try to get at, the, at least at this level? Are you, are you asking from underwriting standpoint, what type of return we're looking for, like with our investors or, or from specific to some of the metrics of the property itself? Either or. I mean, is it, is it pretty like, Hey, like if this, if this property is not going to get 10%, then, then we're not even going to look underwrite it. Or is it, Hey, like we're, we're really shooting for high teens or low twenties. What's kind of your, what's kind of your outlook? Well, I mean, I would say our appetite is really guided by the investors that partner with us, right? So traditionally, the majority of the equity that are going into these deals, like in the last year, in the last 12 months, we, we did just over 90 million in self-storage acquisitions. And we've raised, you know, we raised over 40 million in investor equity. So really, it's what we think we can sell to our investor base. And, and, you know, the, the returns that they expect so that we can essentially sell that property to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And so I would say that there are three categories of deals that we do. And, and I'll use, you know, there's a lot of return metrics that people look at, but, you know, I'll use a cash on cash return. So just, just a basic ROI. And, and, and I'll walk you through each of the category, kind of how we look at it. And, and nothing's hard and fast and these dynamics change as the market changes. But, you know, for a stabilized asset where there's no construction risk, where literally we're buying a cash flowing asset and there may be some things we can do to improve, but potentially we're not, you know, we're not doing a, a large expansion. It, it's, it's already full. You know, it's economically and, and physically stabilized and we're really just going in to run it. We call those coupon clippers. We're looking for sort of that high single digit cash on cash return. So call it that eight to 10% a year type of return. And for our value add deals where there is construction risk, right? Where we're going in, we're going to spend money to expand and potentially in that expansion, we could go over budget. You know, a lot of bad things can happen in a construction period. Those deals have a little bit more pop on the back end when we sell them. So the cash flow year over year may be in that, you know, call it four to eight cash on cash return a year. But when we sell those, there's a usually a, a really nice push on the back end. And, and we shoot for sort of that mid teens, call it 14 to 16% a year type of return when you're all said and done um, for our value add deals. And then our development deals, and, and we're doing very few of these. Uh, we did one last year. We'll probably do one, maybe two this year. Those deals, we're shooting for high teens, low double digits, right? So think that 18 to 
but keep in mind that development deals are very risky and that, you know, those are the ones where your money can become <laughs> a lot less than you started very quickly. Um, especially in the cycle that we're in right now with self storage. There's, there's been a huge development cycle in storage. And so that's why we're really cautious when we do any type of development because, you know, in the two to, you know, say it's two years before the building's out of the ground and, and you have the ability to create any cash flow, a lot of bad things can happen in that two years, right? A, a competitor can build across the street that you didn't project. You know, a market can be impacted by an employer leaving. You know, things can happen that um, don't allow you to reach your pro forma assumption. So there is a nice pop on the back end with development deals, but you're you're definitely taking a different risk with those types of, of projects. Does that help? I mean, yeah, I, totally. I no, I think that's it great. Depends. Yeah, it's a it it's a it depends scenario, but but honestly, that's kind of where our investors require the returns to be for them to participate. Totally. So that's that's how we underwrite deals to say, okay, can we meet these thresholds? And if we can't, then it's probably not a deal we're going to do. Yeah. And are you paying your your investors on a quarterly basis cash flow or is that going biannually or? Yeah, we typically uh, pay investors on a quarterly basis. Um, so we have a, a quarterly distribution that goes out with a quarterly statement kind of updating investors on what's going on, you know, with the particular property. Awesome. So Chris, just to wrap up here, what are some of the mistakes that you've made over your career? Maybe even just in the last <laughs> day, like you told us. Oh, man, there's so, so many. Uh, look, I, 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 mistakes aren't, I, I've learned the most from mistakes. And I know this is cliched to say, and everybody says it, um, that you learn the most from your mistakes, but that doesn't take the pain out of them. They still suck. They're, they're not fun. And, you know, if you are pushing, if you are taking that jump, kind of like what we talked about before, you're going to make you're going to make mistakes. I'll give you a couple that I've, that we've absolutely done. So one in, in that development cycle that when we built that 64 unit complex, we went over budget uh, by a, a pretty substantial amount in the second phase. And it was a good learning process for me. And, and the reasons we went over budget were very much controllable, but no one was watching. And so things like we sheetrocked the garage and painted it on the insides of the garage. And, you know, we're building a really nice apartment community, but I don't care if the garages are sheetrocked and painted. And they just did that. No one was paying attention. And, and those things add up over the, you know, the cost of significant number of garage units. And so good learning experience, a little bit expensive. Uh, fortunately, we, we made up for it in the third phase. Um, but the, the ones that I've, that have hurt the most have been the ones that are controllable. Uh, I'll give you another one that we did just last fall at Reliant. There was a property that we were, um, recapitalizing. So we had a group of equity investors that had sort of hit their investment horizon. And they said, hey, would you guys be willing to sell the property? We want to get out. And we said, well, we we still like this property. What if we just go get a new group of investors to recapitalize you out? And they said, yeah, fantastic. So it was a property we'd owned for three plus years. Um, and so when we did our due diligence to kind of go through an underwriting process on a property we owned, we took shortcuts. And, and it's not a specific blame, but 
on our comp study where we go out and analyze the market to understand the supply and demand, we missed two new development deals that were coming into the market. Now, if we had the processes in place to catch them, anyone would have seen them. <laughs> if you, you know, we have employees on the ground every day and we didn't consult them and we should have known. But the big mistake was one of the investors who was coming into the project went and visited the site and found those two development deals and came back to us with them and said, Hey, these aren't in your comp study. And as you can imagine, we looked very, very foolish. And so that was a, that was a, you know, controllable. It was part of a process that we should have understood, but you know, it was just kind of a lazy thing where like, Hey, did you do this? And they're like, yep, we got it. Here it is. And no one checked, no one double checked. And you know, it, that one bit us in the butt. We lost, you know, we, we had uh, a significant chunk of money out with a lender to kind of uh, hold the the property and we lost it because we we couldn't in good faith go out to our investors and say, hey, here's what the market was because that's not what it was. It was changing, right? There were two new development deals happening. And, you know, so that was money out of our pockets that you just kind of set on fire and throw out the window. But, you know, good learning experience. And, and that certainly won't happen anymore. I mean, we've changed our processes so that it can't. But you certainly looked, we, we, we did not look how we would want to look to our investor base. Totally. Just to wrap up here, what what kind of advice did you give your son who's going to be graduating here? Is he going to go into real estate or is he going to college? What what's his uh his story and what kind of advice have you given him as he embarks on his post high school career? <laughs> well, what advice I've given him and what he'll take, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what we end up with. But he he is accepting to college. Uh, he's excited to go to Colorado State out in Fort Collins, Colorado. He's deferred a year. They'll hold your spot for you. And he's doing a gap year program where he's doing a little bit of traveling for a semester and kind of seeing how the world works type of thing, teaching some English as a second language. Um, you know, they're doing some village building service type work and they're doing some fun stuff too. Um, and then what I've asked them to do is uh, I fortunately have a lot of contacts in the kind of the trades. Um, there's a lot of money to be made in skilled trades, carpentry, plumbing, electricity, HVAC, uh, anything. Um, so he's going to do some, I'm using air quotes, interning with a few of these trades to kind of get a feel for, is that a path he'd be interested in? And then my goal for him as he comes into next spring, you know, as he has to commit to, uh, to CSU is, you know, he'll make a decision on college based off experiences and say, Hey, I may not know exactly what, you know, the end point is, but my next step is this and it's based off data, you know, as opposed to just saying, Hey, when you're done with high school, you go to college. Well, I, I'm fairly cynical to that idea too. <laughs> it, you know, the student debt is un, an unbelievable burden to the United States and will impact future generations. And until someone figures out how to make the cost of college go down, it's, it's not a strong ROI. So. You know, for him, I, what I'm trying to get him to do is see opportunities. And then, you know, he may not know where they lead him, but don't be afraid to jump in. And, you know, fortunately, we're in a position where, where he can do that for a year and go explore a little bit and learn what else is happening before, you know, he makes a commitment to, you know, whether it's a trade or, or college, which all I'm fine with. I just want him to do it with kind of the eyes wide open. 
Totally. If he came to you and said, hey, dad, I want to start in real estate, where would you point him? I mean, it, it's a passion thing, right? It's it's what do you like specifically? Uh, what I realized really quickly is I hated operations. Like I wanted nothing to do with managing processes and tenants. And that's not my shtick. Like I enjoy chasing the deal and I like the money aspect, like the investing side. So for me, that's why I got out of kind of the duplex world and got into the, you know, multifamily space and the syndication world, kind of the equity raising space, which is primarily I run the equity arm of Reliant Real Estate, right? My job is to make sure when we buy a property that there's money to, you know, equity money from investors to buy it. So I think it's a passion thing with Noah, just, and that's my 18 year old son's name. If with him, I would say he's very physical. He likes hands on type stuff. I would probably steer him to what we're trying to do with the carpentry or, Hey, go learn a trade that you can apply to real estate. And then maybe you learn the trade. Then maybe you go work with a real estate broker for a couple months and figure out how that works. You know, and, and then you have the opportunity to say, okay, maybe I can flip houses. Now I have access to the market. I know how to do a little bit of work or manage other people who can do it. Then I have access to, you know, flipping a home. And, and I think it's a journey, right? That you have to find what you like to do. And, and as you explore what you like to do, then, you know, ultimately you're going to find your next step. And I think, like you said, uh, you just got to be willing to take it. Totally. Chris, where can people find out about you, your company, and, and kind of more about what you all do? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, there's a couple places that I'll, I'll lead you. Um, we, we have an educational website. It's actually uh, chrisbenson.com. It's K-R-I-S-B-E-N-S-O-N.com. Um, there's a number of educational pieces of just kind of resources of about real estate and real estate investing. Um, Reliant in, there's two Reliant websites, ReliantInvestments.com. That's more towards the investor tilt. If uh, you're interested in learning more about um, how you may be able to partner with us on future self-storage investments, you can go there. um, There's information on our firm, our track record, that kind of thing. And then Reliant Management is uh, www.reliant-mgmt.com. And that that specifically talks about our self-storage platform and kind of the management company that uh, that runs them. And then I have a LinkedIn profile as well. I'm, I uh, try to be fairly active on LinkedIn um, with some some posts there. So people can certainly find me there. I'm, I'm Chris with a K. So it's K-R-I-S-B-E-N-S-O-N. Awesome. That's Chris with Reliant. Appreciate you coming on the show today. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.